Well, thank you, Kevin and Ben, and uh, thank you to you all for singing and being uh, here this morning. If you're listening online later, we missed you this morning, and thank you for listening online later. You're reaching us in the last part of a 10-part series. Congratulations on surviving our uh, Remember When study. Uh, I have enjoyed being in this study with you, and I hope that you've been able to get some things out of it that have been helpful for you. So uh, this morning, I want to kick off by talking for a minute about Monopoly. How many of you played Monopoly? Oh, seriously, Amos, you're going to do that? All right, I saw that. Um, so the reason is it's Thanksgiving week coming up and uh, family time and it's going to roll into Christmas before too long and so it's honest. Some of you have already seen Christmas decorations in, uh, in uh, stores and maybe some already in your homes as well and you just cannot wait and you're super excited. Others of us uh, are, are not there yet. But uh, so Monopoly is often played uh, during the, the, the season like this, right? When you have extra time sitting around as a family. Anyone experience that as a family? You're sitting around family time, Thanksgiving, Christmas, so you got some time, got some, you know, room, and hey, someone's like, hey, you all want to play some Monopoly? I will tell you my reaction to that. That's right. That's right. Are you kidding me? Like, I would rather have 14 root canals right now. No, not quite. Not quite that bad. But I used to really enjoy playing Monopoly. But here's, I mean, you know the story of Monopoly. It, like, it's easy to start the game. It's just hard to finish it, right? Like, it's easy to pull that board out and get going. And then there's some energy around the starting point, And then it bogs down, especially when all the properties are bought. And then you have someone not willing to trade with you. You ever play a game like that? Like, you are kidding me. We are, like, paper-cutting each, each other to death, right? Like, you owe me $5 for landing on here. You owe me $12 for landing on there. You owe me 17 for this. You owe me 5 here. Like, let's just... Okay. So here's what happens. Has this ever happened to you? Anyone ever play multiple days of Monopoly? Anyone in that camp? Multiple day people? Yep, yep. And that's exactly right. It happens. And here's what I've learned about Monopoly is that the people who win Monopoly actually are the ones who have the ability to endure Monopoly the longest. That, that is generally what happens. Not necessarily the smartest, but generally the people who are willing to endure the game of Monopoly the longest. The people who are able to maintain and not just to start. Right? And that is a general principle that's true for life. The people who get along well, the people who are able to maintain and not just start. Because it's always easier to start something than it is to keep it going for a long time, isn't it? It's always easier to start the new diet than to keep it going for a whole month or two or six or the next you know, three seasons of your life. It's always easier to start a new exercise routine than it is to keep it going. It's always easier to start a new relationship uh -huh, than to keep that one going through the ups and downs. It's always easier to start a response to, to, uh, to faith by saying, I'm, now I'm going to trust God. And when things get harder, it's harder to maintain that. It's always easier to start something than to maintain it. We know that is true, and it's definitely true in Monopoly, and it is true in just about every area of life. And this morning, it certainly, certainly, certainly is true for the people of the nation of Israel. We are in the part of the book in Nehemiah where they have started to uh, change the way that they see God. They have kind of re uh, up their commitment to faith. They are people who the wall has been built and they have made commitments to God that have been pretty high-level commitments. Like they are, they are starting again to, to uh, kind of re-identify themselves as a people who trust God no matter what. And now, the game of Monopoly is going day after day after day and years have now gone by. And they are on the verge of absolutely blowing it and absolutely losing everything that they have worked we're at the point where Nehemiah, who was the, the governor of, the period of that uh, region at the time, has left. Like he's gone back to the king of Persia. And in his absence, the nation begins to fall apart. And it's crazy. 
expected. It's absolutely crazy what happens in this chapter. In fact, there are things, that when we slow down and look at them this morning, if you've never read the last chapter of Nehemiah, you're going to wonder, I had no idea that this kind of leadership was in the Bible. And I don't know if I should ever do this, but it is in the Bible. It's going to be interesting to see it. And here's what I want for you this morning. I want for you, by the time we get to the end of this morning, to have one question, one question that I want to give to you that will, I hope, help you bring clarity to the things that you already want to value in your life that can be a clarifying question that will help you move forward on all the things that you've ever said, man, I, I want my life to be marked by this, 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 this. I want to bring you one question from the book of Nehemiah from the last chapter that we will get to at the very end. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to the very last chapter in our little book of Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew around you, and uh, we'd love to give that Bible to you if you don't own a Bible. This will be our gift to you this morning. But Nehemiah chapter 13 is where we are at. You can find it by looking in the table of contents or by poking your friend or by um, looking in the book of Psalms, which is in the middle, and kind of going to your left. And uh, through the course of time, as we begin to... um, you know, walk through life and, and, um, and the things that we start are difficult to maintain. Part of the reason for that is because we forget the why behind it. Like we lose why we started the diet in the first place. We forget why we wanted to make that, com- that financial commitment or whatever. This morning we're going to see that the people have lost some of their why behind that. So here's how this section is going to break down. In case you're an orderly person in your mind, there are um, three issues that Nehemiah is going to deal with. I don't know if you were looking at me when I did that, but here's what I did. I said there are three issues, right, with two fingers out. So my brain is already sharp this morning. I'm already killing it in my own brain, all right? There are, there are three, three issues that Nehemiah deals with, and, and behind each one of those three issues, he makes a statement that begins with remember. So it, there's an issue, and then he says remember. An issue, and then remember. An issue, and then remember. And that's the breakdown of the text this morning. We're going to begin at verse 4 in Nehemiah 13 and walk all the way through the end of the chapter. Okay, so Nehemiah chapter 13, beginning at verse 4 for us. So before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah. I don't know if you remember Tobiah, but Tobiah was an enemy of Israel. He was one of the um, antagonists at the beginning of the story. He wanted to do anything that he could to keep the walls from being built. And so there's a little bit of a warning or a hint that this is strange now. The priest was closely associated with the very one who was doing his best to undermine the entire rebuilding process. And so Eliashib, verse 5 now, he had provided him, Eliashib provided Tobiah, check this out, with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. So here's what's happening. If this room is available, that means that these things are not in it. Like if Tobiah can fit in there, that means that the people are not giving the things that they're supposed to be giving. This is a, like a warehouse room, a big closet, a big area to store all these things. Hey, Tobiah, there's nothing there anyway, which tells us that the people were already not doing what they were supposed to be doing. So Tobiah, we got a big room. Why don't you move in? It's crazy. 
So, verse 6. But while all this was going on, meaning the people were not contributing as they should, and Eliashib is giving Tobiah a room in the, the courts, uh, I was not in Jerusalem. This is uh, Nehemiah speaking. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had to return to the king. So he had spent 12 years here, and now he returns. So sometime later, and we don't know when, we don't know how much time passed, but I asked his permission, and verse 7, came back to Jerusalem. And here I learned about the evil thing that Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased. And through all Tobias's, uh, uh, Tobias' household goods out of the room. Isn't that awesome? Check that out for a minute. Stop and process that moment. Get in that moment for a minute. Uh, smell what that would smell like. See what that would look like. Feel what that would feel like. The governor who had set up the walls and set up all these reforms spiritually, he comes back and the first thing he does is he starts throwing furniture out onto the street. That's what he does. he's doing. He, seriously. Like he's just taking the couch and chucking it out. He's taking the PS4 and throwing it out. Like he's taking the lamp, there goes the lamp, there goes the, the bed. I mean, there goes all the stuff. I know you slept on that last night to buy, but all your linens are out, all your clothes are out, the drawers, the desks are out. Like uh, We are literally throwing physical objects out of here in anger. It's reminded me of uh, when Jesus in the New Testament got so angry with the money changers in the temple that he overturned their tables, a very physical, tangible act of anger in his heart. Like, this is wrong that you would even be here. It's amazing. Here comes the leader. First thing he does, doesn't call a, doesn't call a council. There's no committee meeting on this. It's just like, your stuff is in here. I am throwing it out onto the street. It's out of here. That's amazing. So verse 9. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense, the things that were supposed to have been here anyway. I also learned, and this was underneath the problem of Tobiah even having a room to be in, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. In other words, they were not able to work as Levites or singers or gatekeepers because they didn't have the money, they didn't have the resources. So they needed to go work. And what happens when the people who were supposed to be freed to, to work on the temple and to maintain corporate worship, when they can't do what they're supposed to do, then the entire nation suffers, and they don't have the spiritual leaders to continue to move them to God. And so because of the, the people's unwillingness to give what they were supposed to give, that room is empty, Tobiah moves in, and the Levites and priests are back harvesting their fields. And we have a spiritual decay going on in the nation of Israel. Verse 11, so I rebuked the officials and asked them, and this is such a poignant question he asks, why is the house of God neglected? And that is exactly what they said they would never do when we were in this book last week. If you were here last week, you remember it. If you weren't, I'm going to tell you. This exact phrase they used in chapter 10, as the people of Israel got together, this culmination, this big moment, kind of this, everybody get around the campfire, and all emotions are high, and we're ready to commit our life to Jesus. You know, we're, we're all in. Like, they committed. And one of the phrases they said that, that topped it all off, the last thing they said, whatever we do, we will not neglect the house of our God. Boom. And Nehemiah comes in, and the first question he asks the people, why is the house of God neglected? Why is the very thing that you said you're going to do being done? 
And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. You get here, you here, you here, you here. Verse 12. And all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. And I put Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan son of Zakor, the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. We need to have people we can trust in positions of leadership. And they were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. That is the first issue, and here enters the first remember. Nehemiah says this, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. This gives us a window into Nehemiah's why. Why is Nehemiah doing this? Why does he care the way that he does? It's because of what he says in verse 14. Look at it again. He says, remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. That language of blot out means it's a language of judgment. He's saying basically, God, please don't judge us as a people for the things that are happening here. In other words, Nehemiah is going to get so angry with the people that he believes that it's better for the people to be the recipients of his wrath than God's wrath. It's better for me to take my anger out on them in righteous judgment on what they've done than to have God bring his righteous judgment because we've seen the way that God plays on judgment and we do not like what he brings and it is painful and is generational. And Nehemiah comes with this burden and passion in his heart to say, people, 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 you started this. You were having a problem maintaining it because you have forgotten the why. And part of this why is if you do not do this, God will come blot you out again. Do not forget what has happened to us as people. Come on. And this is what is underneath the fire in his stomach and his soul that makes him so angry at what is happening. He's not ready and he is not willing to see the people go down the road that they have already gone down. And he does something about it. And it gets progressively stronger for Nehemiah in his response. Look at the next issue in verse 15. In those days, I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all their kinds of loads. They were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. This is our second issue. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Well, men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. Verse 17, I rebuked the nobles of Judah. How often do you think nobles are used to being rebuked? I rebuked them. Yeah, the people who are noble, yep. The nobility, yep. The people who are not used to being, uh, you know, cussed out by somebody who's just angry. I don't know that he cussed them out. I can't say that, right? But it's that feeling of like, he laid into them. I rebuked the people whose language was higher than mine. I said, y'all are are wrong. You can't do this. I rebuked the nobles for what they have done and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you're stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. This is Nehemiah's anger. Like, I don't care who you are, I don't care how in charge you are, I don't care what kind of respect you have with people. Like, this is wrong. You are doing wicked things. Can you imagine speaking to your boss like that? Can you imagine speaking to the people that we prize the most and respect the most in our community? 
speaking to them that way, because that is exactly what Nehemiah is doing. So, verse 19, here's what's going on. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not open until the Sabbath was over. And I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Well, once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem waiting for the next version of the iPhone to be delivered to the store. That's the idea. They're out there, they're lining up, they're waiting. They're just poised and ready to jump. And so I can almost picture Nehemiah peering over the wall at them. Verse 21. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. Now, we lay hands on people here, on this stage. Like when we're praying for them, to commission them for some kind of thing. Nehemiah is not saying, if you stay here again, I'm going to pray for you. He's saying, if you stay here again, I'm going to fight you to hurt you. Get away from my wall. I will lay hands on you. Don't bring it again. This is not normal talk for a leader like this. And he means it. He's already chucked Tobias goods outside into the street. And here's Nehemiah. You want to play the game? Be ready. Because I'm going to lay my hands on you next time you're here. Serious stuff. (laughs) And from that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. That was probably a good idea. Verse 22. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then this is his second remember. Then he turns back to God, remember me for this also, O oh my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. It's intriguing that he would ask God to not forget the time where he threatened violence against people. That's exactly what he's saying. Like, remember this time. Remember me the favor for the burden in my heart to do the right thing. Verse 23, and it gets even more exciting here. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. And so I rebuked them and called down curses on them. That's pretty exciting right there. Can you imagine what that would be like? Like I rebuked them and then I'm like bringing curses onto them and their children, their child, their life. Like I'm bringing a curse on you. And then, this is even more exciting, I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. Seriously. Like, you can't make this stuff up in the Bible. Here's a, a Christian leader who's asking God to remember him with favor. And he's saying, I, yeah, I absolutely beat these men up. And yes, I ripped their beards out. Does anyone have a problem with that? Like, that's exactly what he's saying. Like, I, I physically beat these men up. I mean, can you, again... Imagine what that would be like. Like, Do you think Nehemiah is uh, some wussy little man afraid to lead? Do you think maybe he got a couple uh, black eyes in the process? Do you think he had some people along with him to help in case he got jumped? Like These people were beaten up and we believe it was probably their beards were pulled out. That's a a sign of disgrace and shame. But here's Nehemiah. He's just just taking names and uh, he's going at it. It's incredible. It's incredible what he's doing. 
And then, like, I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. And I guess, when you beat people up, you can tell them what to do. Because I made them take an oath. I don't care if you want to take this oath, you take it now. Did you see what I did to your neighbor? I'm coming for you. You want the oath, you want me to beat you up, pull your hair out. Which one are you going to do? And that, that's what's going on in this section. There's an anger in Nehemiah, this burning passion in him to say, man, I, I'm going to bring the judgment of God on the things that are wrong so that God doesn't bring it himself. Like, I know this is wrong. And because you don't, I need to do something drastic here for you to see it. This is wrong. And there's this right passion in him that corrects all the wrong things that they're doing. It is a deep problem that he sees. And this passion burns in him to make this happen. And so, verse 26. Was it not because of marriages like this that Solomon, the king of Israel, sinned among the many nations? There was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Joiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the other enemy in this wall-building project. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, oh my God. And this is a remember them, not a remember me. But remember them, oh my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. And so I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. In other words, I set everything back in order. All the things that he had set in place were at risk of falling apart. And when he comes back, he comes in with this fire in his soul and he sets it all back in place again. And then he finally finishes in verse 31. Remember me with favor. Oh my God. Which is incredible to say that after you've just thrown someone's stuff out into the streets. You've just rebuked the nobles and you've just called down curses on people, beat them up and pulled their hair out. God, remember me with favor. It's incredible that he can say that. In Nehemiah's life, what I see in him is this passion for the right things that corrected the things that had gone so wrong for the nation of Israel. I see him helping the nation remember the why, because when you lose the why, you lose momentum, right? When you lose the why, you lose momentum, and his correction helped put the nation back on track. Without him, they were already going down a path that they shouldn't have been going down slowly, 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 giving up the ground that they had gained by building the wall and resetting their value system. It's one thing to look at the book of Nehemiah. It's one thing to look at someone like Nehemiah and see the anger in his heart and see the injustice that he saw and acknowledge it in our minds and see the good work that he had done. But if we're honest, it's also a bit removed from our regular experience. Like, not many of us can really relate to this kind of leader. And I'm not commending violence for you, by the way. Like, I'm not commending, especially if you have an anger problem. Listen to me for a minute. If you have an anger problem, I'm not commending to you that you go home and rip apart your family with what you believe is the right thing to do, and you start yelling and calling down curses on people and beating each other up. James reminds us in the New Testament that the anger of man does not, does not, does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. 
The anger of man does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. This is a unique time, a unique place for Nehemiah to do this. But it belies or it shows this deep passion in his heart that he saw something that was so wrong and he wanted to change it. And he knew that if I bring this, I will help keep the judgment of God from these people. It's one thing to see that in Nehemiah in a world far, far away from us, in a people removed so far from us. It's one thing to see it in our minds, and it's another thing to feel it in our experience. Because this happened so long ago, the ripple effect of it is difficult for us to feel even now. And so I began to think, who else has done this through history? Like, who else has done this who's maybe closer to us than someone like Nehemiah? And I began to think, as I was preparing this message, that there's another man and several people, several, several people, that we can think of throughout history, but one man in particular that I wanted to just spend a moment on this morning because what he did was very similar, very similar to what Nehemiah did. And the impact of what he did, we still feel today. Because I want us to feel like and to see what it feels like to have someone who's willing to pay the price of making this kind of change happen. And I'm speaking about a man um, who lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s in England, who was a political, in political power at the time. And some of you know the name William Wilberforce. And Wilberforce was a man whose heart was changed over time. He did not believe in Jesus from the beginning of his life, but over time... He, came, he turned to faith in Christ. And when he did, when he turned to faith, here's what he wrote in his journal. He said that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade, and then what he wrote is the reformation of manners. The, the um, suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. It, the second one makes almost no sense to us, and here's what he meant. He was looking around at a culture in London in particular that was godless, that had lost its moral compass and was degenerating into all kinds of ridiculousness. And here's what was happening um, at the time for Wilberforce in the early 1800s. We had child labor, significant problem. Poor kids as young as five and six were employed for 10 to 12 hours a day. Think about that for a minute. Think of a five or six-year-old that you you know. And imagine them working for 10 to 12 hours a day and having that be normal. Because that's what was happening for Wilberforce at the time. He also saw alcoholism being rampant. The upper class was perpetually drunk. Members of parliament were drunk during legislative sessions. The lower class was drunk on gin. The upper class was drunk on other alcohol. There was a perpetual alcohol problem. Imagine that being normal for us today. Number three, sexual trafficking of women was significant. 25, a full 25%, one in four, single women in London were being sexually trafficked. And the average age was 16. Imagine that being normal for us today. Imagine looking around and just knowing and feeling helpless that that's the way it's going to be. One in four young ladies about the age of 16 will be sexually trafficked. That's the world Wilberforce was living in. In, in the squares of London... Animal cruelty, such as bull baiting and bear baiting, were common for the drunken crowds. They got riled up with the sight of, of blood and gore. And if the animal cruelty wasn't enough, then public hangings were on common display. And after the hangings, if that wasn't enough, uh, public dissections of the body was going to continue to fill the bloodlust of the crowd. This was common. Imagine for a minute that being normal in our society now because this was normal for Wilberforce. And finally, capital punishment for very little reason and prison conditions were deplorable. To say nothing yet 
of both the slave trade and slave ownership, which Wilberforce looked out and saw and said, these are things that I believe God Almighty has put on my heart that I need to change. Now let me ask you, why do you think today, 2017, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, that those things cut against our moral conscience? Why is it that we are in a place where we think, I cannot imagine living in a society like that? Where do you think the values in the West came from in the last 100, 200, 300 years? And I would argue that Wilberforce was one of the greatest, if not the greatest, social reformer of our day and that his work to reform the manners of London has created a world in which you and I have now grown up in here in which these things are not normal because of what Wilberforce has done over the course of his lifetime, where the anger that he saw toward these things created a brand new world ultimately in London that began to move, particularly with the slave trade, from London spreading through Europe, spreading to Russia as well, and to the United States to get everyone on board that everyone is made in the image of God. And that God is a God of righteousness and justice. And if those things are true, then we cannot live in the way that we have been living. Wilberforce changed the world in which you and I have now grown up in. And that is why it feels so off to us to imagine a world that he grew up in. Because when we are clear about the why, things change. When there's a passion in our heart, things get transformed. It was true for Nehemiah. It was true for Wilberforce. And we are the recipients of Wilberforce's social reformation. And so let me ask you, what is it on your heart that you look at in your own life, in your family, in your business, in this community, that you say, if only I could change it. I'm tired of living with. If only this thing would stop burdening my conscience. What is it that you would say, like Nehemiah did, remember me, O God, with favor for my effort to work my passion out of my heart in this way? And that is a difficult question to ask. What is it that is on your heart that you see injustice around you or you see your own personal struggle with sin or temptation or failure or shame or guilt in the past that you think will always be with you or in your family, the thing that has always been in your family or in your business trying to create a new culture in your business that may not be explicitly Christian business, but you know that you do not want to see your business go down this road and it's being challenged and threatened and you have opportunity to influence. Or in this community, things that are happening in your school, or those living in poverty, and those in middle class, those struggling in different ways, that you say, this is just wrong. What is it in your heart that has been ever stirred for the passions of God, that has a little fire in you, that kind of wants to be blown into flame, that you just wish things were, were different? I just want to encourage you with this. You do not know what hangs in the balance when you consider questions like that. I guarantee you that when Wilberforce wrote down, there are two things that God Almighty has called me to, slave trade and the Reformation manners. I guarantee you he had no idea the ripple effect that would have hundreds of years later into the world in which we live today. But what hung in the balance for Wilberforce was monumental, generational, world-changing. And I do not know what hangs in the balance for you and neither do you. But I guarantee you that there are potential implications for the next generation, for the next 
leader for our community if we as people remember why we do what we do. If we not only start, but are able to finish. If we take these passions of our heart that we have, the injustice we see, the things that we want to change, and give them to God. You may have heard me say before, as I've talked with some of you personally, and sometimes up here, one of the most clarifying questions I have asked myself is a question of what do I want people to say about me at my funeral, right? And that's a good question to ask. It's a clarifying question, brings perspective and, and, and all that. But here's, a, I think, an even better question. And this is the one question I said at the beginning that I want to leave you with here this morning as we wrap up the book of Nehemiah. And this question takes that idea of what do I want God, what do I want people to remember about me at my funeral? It takes it down because sometimes the future is so far away, it seems like so many things can happen between here and there. Here's one question that I think is a clarifying, simple question that will help you if you're willing to ask it. Keep your focus on the right things so that you are not drawn away over the course of time with the difficulty of maintaining. Because here's what we know about a lifetime. A lifetime is made up of days. Right? I can't experience a lifetime without experiencing hundreds or thousands of days. And so what becomes most important is not what do I do in my lifetime, but what do I do with today? So here's a question. Very simple. What do I want God to remember about me today? What do I want God to remember about me today? Forget the future. Forget all that today. What do I want God to remember? As Nehemiah did. Remember me with favor, oh my God. Remember me. Remember me. If I only had today, what is it today that I want God to remember me for today? How do I want him to remember me in my role as a husband with my wife? How do I want him to remember me as I wake up and engage my family in the morning or my roommate who just did something stupid last night? You know, how, how do I want him to remember me today? What is it that I'm reading, reacting to today? God, how, 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 how today can I act in such a way that I keep the why in mind? This is such a clarifying question because it doesn't speak about some nebulous future out there, but it speaks to the very reality of where you work, where you go to school, the family that you're involved in, the church you're a part of, the community you're involved in, the team you're a part of. God, here's what I want you to remember about me today. I was impatient with my family. I was short with the person I was talking to. I had three judgmental thoughts about the person driving in front of me. And I don't really give a rip about what happens in our community. That's what I want you to remember about me today. Or is the story different? This is a very clarifying question because it pushes our ideals into the present. It keeps us from just starting something and not maintaining. But today, what do I want God to remember about me today? And I don't know what that is for you. I don't know where that will land for you. I don't know where that goes for you. But I know for me it's an incredibly clarifying question that brings the ideals down to the present. Because it's so easy to start something. It's just difficult to maintain it. The series has been called Remember When because we wanted to hone in on this idea in the book of Nehemiah that we see at the end of this chapter. Remember me with favor, oh my God. 
three times in this chapter, remember me, remember me, remember me. And there's this point of remembrance, kind of planting the flag, saying, here's the time, God, I want you to remember me. So I don't know what yours is. I don't know what it is. But I hope, I hope that there can come a time where the next generation may look at you and be like, you know, my mom and dad, my uncle and aunt, my grandma or grandpa, they had a moment. They changed. There was something different. They became very consistent because they regularly kept asking the question, God, what do you want from me today? Today. Today. I hope this series, this life of Nehemiah, has been helpful for you as we continue to pursue our Savior every day. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to be in the book of Nehemiah and see this incredible leadership and this fire and passion in the soul that Nehemiah had that revealed itself in some pretty crazy things that he did. Uh, We know that that's what passion and fire can do for us, and so I pray that you would reawaken that for us, reignite some of that for us, that we can um, see again our family, uh, see again our own personal decisions, our workplace, our school, um, our uh, church, and our community that we can be people who, when these things come right on our radar, things that we just know aren't right, that in the best possible way we can, with conviction and courage and passion, be remembered just this day for a right response to things that are wrong. That we don't walk by the things that need to be dealt with, and that we have this heart that cultivates a right response with passion for the things that you would like to see done in this world. We thank you for the example of people like Nehemiah and also people like Wilberforce who have changed the way that we see our world today. Remind us of what you can do with a life that is fully given over to you. And we want to acknowledge that and ask you to move in us, to draw out things in us and our soul and our response to you that keep moving us deeper in our relationship with you and higher in our love for you. We love you and thank you for the time that we can share this morning. Give us courage to do what we know we should do with the things that we have heard this morning.